Hello. Hello, lovely audience, and welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. Um, Stand Up Tragedy is a variety show that explores tragedy in all its guises, and it's also a podcast, which means you, the wonderful audience, and all your laughs and laughter and tears and exclamations of joy and sadness will be broadcast across the internet. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm, I'm holding a script. <laughs> My normal style of comparing is not fit for this prestigious occasion. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, the normal host is a guy called Dave Pickering, who's wonderful and he's been doing it for years. Um, but he's allowed some guest hosts to come up and do stand-up tragedy. And I've performed on stand-up tragedy for a few years. So I said, yes, please, I'll do it. It, and I've programmed all the acts. Yes. Yes, hurrah, everyone says. Um, so tonight, what to expect? You can expect some sadness. You can ex expect some darkness. That's your little warning. You can expect some laughter and everything in between as our guests explore uh, or um, show us pieces that might respond to the question, what is tragedy? Who is tragic? Um, Bearing that in mind, I'll start with a, a tragic poem. Um, I went to um, the BBC for some sort of launch of something, and I saw Jarvis Cocker there. Yes, he was in the same room as me. <laughs> and it was a networking event, so I could have networked with him if I wanted to. I didn't. Instead, I got the train home and wrote this poem. <laughs> that is the response to real-life situations, guys. Okay. <laughs> Jarvis Cocker, Jarvis Cocker, I just love the bones of you. Oh, Jarvis Cocker, Jarvis Cocker, I would like to bone with you. Oh, Jarvis, with your big, black, thick, rimmed glasses, like Velma. I also like Scooby-Doo. Oh, Jarvis Cocker, Jarvis Cocker, I would do the do with you. Oh, Jarvis, take me, take me, take me, take me to the supermarket. I am common too. You can strip my wood chop chip walls and show me your decorator's tool. Oh, Jarvis Cocker, Jarvis Cocker. You're not just an aging rocker. <laughs> Someone said you'd wrote an opera. I have a feel for you to copper. <laughs> oh, Jarvis tall and Jarvis lean. I love you, Jarvis. Marry me. Thank you. Okay, thank you. This is the beginning of our roller coaster ride. Our first act up is the terrifyingly talented Mr. Ian Hales. He's an actor, a director, an improviser, and a writer based in the Northwest. He improvs with Improprietor, which is an amazing improv company, and he's currently writing a novel called Chains. Give him a big applause as he gets to the stage. Come on. Hello, hello. Yeah, I mean, um, I am writing a book. It's not finished yet. It will be. It needs to be finished by this Christmas. That's part of my tragedy, is I'm locking myself away to finish it. Um, it's uh, called Chains, a counterpoint to A Christmas Carol, and from that you might note that it is set at the same time as A Christmas Carol, but it's focusing on a different character. That character is Marley, the one who usually just gets one scene. He gets the lot in this. Um, so this extract is from quite early on in the novel, because I haven't finished yet. Um, 
But in this part, Marley, who's been travelling for seven years and not speaking to any other ghosts, is suddenly seeing in front of him a ghost forming. And he's by um, Scrooge's shop. If you can imagine Scrooge's shop, it's about here and the other ghost's about here. Podcast people, put it where you like. I don't know. <laughs> so, okay, um, here is Marley's, uh, Marley's first encounter. It was a man. Marley could see that much, even as it was still wreathed in ectoplasmic smoke, powerfully built and strong of stature. On his head, fog curled into a crown that shone like the moon on a clear night, and his flowing robes were fashioned from mist ermine and miasma velvet, adorned with shadow jet and silhouette brocade. A fine figure indeed. And had the shape had just the good grace to stay its hand at materialization there, perhaps Marley's terror would have abated. But it did not. The head that appeared within that crown was a horror indeed. In most part, the face was a pale death mask of a thing. The noble brow scowled, but in a countenance more in sorrow than in anger. The eyes, keen and shrewd were as blue sapphires, and the lips set hard and cold, all told of a man who had once been the highest of the high. The handsome and imposing visage was twisted horribly. The right ear had gone, burned away by some horrific and vile poison. The corrosive action of this venom had also eaten into the surrounding skin, consuming the face and exposing a goodly portion of the left side of the skull. The veins in the remaining skin were carved out with the finger of taint, dark green evil growing across the face like a hideous infection. Marley wished that he could cry out. He wished that the dreadful apparition that had just appeared would shake the world with some hideous moan. He wished that the very bricks and mortar of the buildings and the rough cobbles of the alleyway would scream in terror. Any sound, anything, anything, anything to break the silent horror that rooted Marley to the spot. After what seemed an age, he found his voice, small and quiet though it was. Speak, he said, in almost a whisper. What, what manner of apparition are you? The ghostly king made no answer. Did you journey from the lofty halls of heaven or the blasted wastes of hell? No movement in the figure at all. Just those eyes, those terrible eyes, pinning Marley. Are your intents wicked or charitable? Still no indication that the thing acknowledged his existence in the slightest, and yet it stared, still it stared. Please tell me, are you a spirit of good or, or of ill? This last question at least provoked a response. The, t the king turned his gaze from Marley and walked to the mouth of the alleyway. It stopped at the opening, turned back, and beckoned him. That one simple gesture filling him with dread, but he knew not why. Would you have me go with you? The spectre nodded. Now Marley knew, being a thing immortal himself, he shouldn't fear the ghost. Even if it was to tempt him to drown in the Thames or fall from a bridge, then the worst that could happen to Marley was the minor inconvenience of having to make his way through filthy water, the mudflats, or then to the nearest wharf. But he also fancied that there were worse places that the spirit could take him, into the depths of madness, into the yawning pit of desperation, and beyond. And again it beckoned. 
Marley realised that if he didn't follow the ghost, he'd never find out what he wanted with him. So somewhere within him, he found a little courage. Go on. I'll follow you. Although everything in his soul told him he shouldn't. As he followed the king out of the alleyway, Marley looked back through the window. Scrooge was sitting there in his office, alone and impassive. Evidently, the various interviews had had no effect on his partner. Scrooge was set in stone, Marley realised. A ghost before his time, and in that moment he understood he never had any desire to see his old partner again. The ghost king strode through the streets of London with Marley at his back. The living and the dead parted before them both, the latter with obsequies, the former with no apparent knowledge of their inadvertent homage to this insubstantial king. As they walked the street in fog and darkness, it thickened behind them as if the king was wearing some great train of melancholy. Presently, Marley and the ghost king came upon a melancholy tavern that Marley did not recognise. In his life, he'd been a patron of some of the finest restaurants that London could boast of. But this paltry inn looked to him like it kept its clientele on the competitiveness of its pricing rather than the reputation of its cuisine. At last, the ghost king spoke. Mark me. The voice was both commanding and piteous. Great pain was seared through every syllable. I will, I will, said Marley. What do you want with me? Much, said the king. That one word landing like a gravestone upon Marley's ear. Lend thy serious hearing to what I shall unfold. Marley's little store of courage had been used up, and once again he was struck dumb. Thou art a dismal spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the earth till the foul crimes done in thy days of thy nature are burnt away, said the king. Cut off even in the blossoms of thine own sin, no reckoning made, but sent to thy account with all the imperfections on thy head. Oh, I, I was at that, my lord. Although he thought it was rather a heavy way of putting it. It is required of every man, the ghost continued, that the spirit within him should walk abroad amongst his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. Tell me, vile spirit, wouldst thou save one sinner from thy fate if thou could? My lord, if I could, I, I would save the whole of the damned human race. Presumptuous shade, said the ghost, know thy petty place. One sinner, one soul, wouldst thou save one and one alone from the same torment as you? Oh, forgive me, my lord, I would, said Marley, even if such a one were surely headed for the sulphurous and tormenting flames, said the ghost. Yes, with a chain as long and full as yours, longer even. Oh, Lord, yes, he said, anything to save another from the dreadful chains. Then I have thy word upon it. You will intervene to attempt to save a soul this very light. I, I shall. Then swear it. Marley faltered. Ever the man of business, he balked at a contract that he didn't have all the information about. Which man, my lord, he said. A shrewd question, as it turned out, and one that he had cause to regret not pursuing with greater vigor. Marley's impudence enraged the king. Wouldst thou question me? Were, thou, were it the basest of men, the most foul serpent that ever crawled the earth, wouldst thou refuse? He said, no, 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 my lord, of course not, 
said Marley. Then wilt thou swear or no? Now, no doubt it will strike you as odd that Marley had not considered why the ghostly king had decided to stop outside this specific tavern. Perhaps you believe that if you were in a similar position, you would have taken this into account of your assessment of the situation. You would also maybe believe that you would have further ruminated on what sort of gentleman might frequent such a tavern. Now, I have no way of knowing if you could have kept your wits about you enough to so to judge this or any other such questions. But I can tell you that Marley's wits at this time were so far gone that none of this occurred to him in the slightest. I swear, said Marley. The Ghost King sighed a long and heavy sigh. He looked to Marley as if a great burden has been lifted for him. "'Tis done,' the ghost said. "'Wait!' said Marley. "'How am I to know who it is I am charged with saving?' "'He is upon us even now,' said the ghost. And a figure walked through the rapidly dissipating form of the king, scattering the last of his figure into fog once more. The face that replaced the king's Marley knew only too well. Ebenezer Scrooge, he said. Thank you, Ian. I think you'll be able to get the book as a podcast and as an actual book at Christmas, you know, and then follow the story of the ghosts. I think here is a completely fitting atmosphere to hear that. If you're listening at home, I hope you've shut your curtains and put the duvet over your head. Um, <laughs> okay, a, cha a change of tone on this um, roller coaster of a journey. Our next guest. Witty, wise, with a natural talent for rhythm and rhyme. Um, superheroes of slam winner and poet extraordinaire, as I like to say. It's the lovely, the wonderful Joy France. Round of applause. <laughs> whoop, whoop. My mum was right. She said something, she said frequently something to me. And it's turned out to be true. I've just come to Edinburgh for the first time as a performer and I've got what, arrived for this last week, all excited. And I walked down the Royal Mile and then I discovered that I have a new superpower. I am actually invisible. Right. My mum said it, said, when you get older, you become invisible and it's happened here in Edinburgh. I walk down the mile and everybody's you know, struggling under these weights of leaflets and flyers and things. Nobody gave me any. So I got to the other end and I thought, okay, what am I going to do about this? Well, you know, what's happened? I've turned invisible. So instead of accepting it in the face of such tragic situation, I turned round. And every time I went past somebody and they didn't give me a flyer, I spoke to them and I asked them why. And I got such a range of answers. Um, things like, we thought you were local. Okay, I don't know what that says about locals. Or, we, you don't look like you'd like comedy. That was a good one. Um, so I've spent this week re-educating the flyers and doing all sorts of weird things. Um, so I'm going to do my first poem about invisibility. And it's because when you get older, people make assumptions. And I refuse to accept those assumptions. So this is a poem that I wrote when I went to my first Aqua Zumba class. I went in. And 
I was quite surprised because I f was the youngest there. I think the eldest was 90, there was 80, there was 70s. And um, I thought, what would it be like if you were a youngster at, in your 20s and you turned up to Aquazumba? And I wrote this in the voice of a young person. In they inch. Warm bodies flinch. The water's cold and they, they're old. Spent, bent backed, sticks stacked, a hobble of women's bodies exposed in ill-fitting cozies. White bits normally covered by cardies glare and I wonder what on earth I'm doing there. My first aqua zumba class is going to be my last. I'm used to exuberant instructors and pounding push yourself mantras and I'm out of place amongst these empty shells. But the music starts and ironically, it's Pharrell's happy. And with no instruction or warning, they follow her movements and it's transforming. Heads are high, they're grinning, they're beginning to look happy. The water's dipping, splashing, stripping off decades and in sync they become a beautiful backdrop of Busby Barkley babes. Then the tempo changes. Salsa, boom, 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 booms, faster and they hit each beat. For they are a slick of black cap jouncers. Some are floating twig stick dancers. One leaps high and her belly bounces. The water laps. Another's flappy breasts slap on the surface like fish on a marble slab. Slap, slap. And in sisterhood and song, I see the joy of the live long. And I give in. I join in. I start dancing like I did as a child. And in our liquid thrustings, we are what all women should be. Vibrant and wild. Abandonment is our heartbeat. Beat, drum, beat, beat, beat. We are samba, merengue, mamba, soca. We turn like otters and tap like ginger. We are salmon leaping torso twisters. And as the music eases, it's with us waving and swaying as we sing with all our might. Don't worry about a thing. And I know that every little thing is going to be all right. A final note, a prick of hush. And they leave the pool in a chattering tide of buzz. And me, I want to be pie pipered. Hear them say... Come join us, don't be alone. And I wouldn't have been surprised to see them heel click and high kick and cartwheel and well dance all the way home. Thank you. Late last night, sat, I was stood at a bus stop, a young couple next to me, um, just on George, George Fourth Bridge. And um, along came the silent disco past us. <laughs> And I'm just at the end. The young fella gets all excited and he high fives and all the rest of it. And as they go past, he turns to me, obviously meaning to have a go, and says, um, So you'll be out tonight then, won't you? Be in the clubs in this sarky voice. And I did this. I know it's a podcast, so I know it won't work. I took this out of my bag and said, um, Well, not tonight, so you might need this, you know, more than I do. And I gave him this. Sorry, for the people listening, it's a pair of really weird, light-up, disco-y sort of, you know, glasses and things. I had several things like this that I had to carry in my bag because my show was about the senses. It was, right. Um, and he looked really embarrassed. And he said, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have assumed. And uh, I need to pay you for it. And I, and I said, no. And he's digging in his pockets. And I said, nah, just pay me by not making assumptions in the future. And um, so... 
one last poem just to finish off about assumptions because I want to do something silly and funny because it's the end of the fringe. Oh, no, you said, oh, yeah, no, it's sad, it's the end of the fringe. Um, very quickly, I'm going to tell you about um, Big Pens who brought out a range for women. Yeah, women need their own range because they've struggled with men pens all these years. Um, yeah, and the pens they need are pastel, slim, dear so in two responses the first one is not mine <clears throat> dear mr bick i send this letter in writing so neat to say my new pen makes my life complete before i didn't know how to think but now i have a pen that's slim pastel and pink thoughts of cute fluffy bunnies fill my brain and having an opinion is too much of a pain doing the shopping list is no longer a chore and my dainty fingers never get sore Every letter I now has a heart on top and I draw a pretty flower instead of a full stop. Sir, you've made my life complete with this big for her. Now I'm demure and to men always defer. My world is filled with glittery magic. Thank you. Kissy kiss from a grateful chick. No, that isn't what I thought. This is what I thought. <clears throat> Oi, Mr. Bick, do you really think that we're so thick as to fall for this marketing trick? Designing a pen just for a lady is misogynistic and it's fucking crazy. Do you really think that we're so daft as to say we prefer a narrower shaft? Pay twice as much for a pen because it's pink? No, let me tell you just what I think. Your wife should say that you make her sick and that her hands are too small to hold your dick. And then tell you exactly where to stick. Your pink chick sticks, Mr. Bick. You thick prick. Thank you so much, Jai. Okay, so um, I met our next guest at the Manchester Fringe Festival at an event called Oh Dear Diary. Uh, I, I joined in this event as well, it was wonderful. I think it's based in Birmingham and you can Google it in that, it's on Facebook. Um, and in, in Oh Dear Diary, participants read from their teenage diaries. So yeah, the real true teenage diaries. And it's a it's a wonderful um, event, you know, full night of teenage diaries. And so I'd like to introduce um, the director of the Still Walking Festival. It's stillwalking.org. Um, it's a lovely Mr. Ben Waddington. Come on. Thanks very much. Uh, that's what it looks like. That's a, that's terrible branding for your secret diary. Don't write secret diary on your secret diary. But that's that's it. That's the one that I kept in 1985. And the extract I'm going to read to you is um, it's a fairly disastrous family holiday to Scotland, to Kirkubri, in 1985. Um, why did we go? I think my dad was thinking, let's have a, a final holiday family holiday and that's how it was announced when we set off from Manchester this is going to be our last family holiday uh, my mum and I, my dad hadn't spoken and I think that they kept that up for about 20 years something like that <laughs> about 20 years and I think it was something to do with my dad wanting to have one last feeling of um, family responsibility <laughs> and it, it was an utter failure uh, as chronicled next um, so it's me, my mum, my dad, and I refer to my sister for some reason as slosher within this. My dad was quite a passive fellow. Um, my mum, more like passive-aggressive. 
and my sister just aggressive, and I kind of res kind of respected her for that. Sunday, the 14th of July, 1985, morning. I've just been told I'm going to Huddersfield. Boring. Um, and mum is coming. She hates them. That's, that's my grandparents. We're going to visit my grandparents. She left us to go and live with Dave and was sad and took it out on my dad's family. She can't come. It's not fair on me. Saturday, tis was day. In case I didn't mention it, I'm off to boring Scotland tomorrow. And I'm also off to Vienna this summer, but Scotland is a dump. I've been before. <laughs> Sun, uh, sun I'm a teenager, right? Sunday, 11.30, about. Soonish, I'm going to boring old Scotland. I'm taking 20 pounds, but I'm hoping to spend 10. I've got loads of books to read, so it won't be too boring. About nine, Sunday. Here I am in Scotland. Scotland's not for me. I locked my diary in my rucksack and left the key, and I had to pick it quite easy. I've just had a bean feast. <laughs> Monday morning, I've just gotten dressed, and my old top is soaked. It rained all night. I'll have to brave it into the caravan. This is a, a caravan holiday. For grotty breakfast. Monday, about 2 p.m. As per usual, mum is in a bad mood. It's about 4 p.m., but I can't be sure. I, I have my own little tent to stay in. On the front of the diary is a table of the days. Those are across the top there. I can only shade in a seventh of it now. I can't wait to go home. God, I'm bored. In a week, I'll look back and think, God, that was boring. <laughs> well, this is how lucky you are now. Watch TV, lie on the bed, stroke the cat. Have a pack of Monster Munch. <laughs> Think of me stuck in the past. I'm still there. A bit of me is still there. <laughs> Nobody in the crapper van except mother. I'm in the tent on the Scottish grounds. Here's some mud from Scotland, and I want to show you a picture of that mud. Is that visible? <laughs> there it is, that's Scottish mud. A piece of Scottish grass. A piece of writing written in Scotland. More writing written in Scotland. I hate Scotland. I want to go home. I can't stand anymore. I want to go home. You should hear the cows outside my tent from behind a flimsy fence of wire. They terrorize me and eat my tent. Ah! Ten to nine p.m. Fab news. When Mum gets back, we're going to talk about going home. Woo! Tuesday, eleven a.m. In my tent. I'm not going home, but my mum might be. If she does, she'll have to go on the train because nobody is going to drive her home. I hope she does go. Four people in a tin box and a plastic bag in a muddy field isn't much fun. I still have five days left in this hellhole. I've never been out of this crappy tent. No, actually, it isn't crappy. It's a good place to retreat to when the going... And I don't finish that sentence for some reason. Tomorrow, I'll be able to say that on the day after tomorrow... On the day after the day after tomorrow, <laughs> we can go home tomorrow. Oh, good, I can hear someone washing up in the crapper van. 
it must be getting on for 12 now. So we've got 12 more hours today, 24 on Wednesday, 24 on Thursday, 24 on Friday, 24 on Saturday, and, a, and about 12 on Sunday. That's about 100, that's 120 hours. I'll check. I'll do a, a sum in the diary. Yes, I'm right. I've got a clock from the crapper van. 6.30, Tuesday. I've just come home from a deer museum. It was okay. Mum not speaking to anyone. I went for a, a walk with Slosher yesterday, and she said Mum smashed her in the face and gave her a nosebleed. I can hear the, vo the noises in the crapper van, but I can't decipher the words. The couple in the next tent are beating their kids up. One's two and one's about five. And they're doing um, a routine in the Pleasance Courtyard between n now and Monday, if you want to try and catch that. They're doing their own, uh, well. 6.34, still got ages left in this shitty crapo country. <laughs> I apologize. Um, I, I want to go home. And I was writing, this is in a school exercise uh, jotter, and I was writing marginalia uh, to entertain myself in addition to annotate the, the uh, original text. So the marginalia on this page reads, I hate Scotland. I want to go home. Scotland's not for me. Deer are nice. That's about it for Scotland, though. The deer's crappy, crappy here. 7.20, I've not had tea yet. I can't go into the caravan because mum is there. I don't know how I'm going to manage for the rest of these holidays. 7.40, slosher, just kick the tent. I presume it's tea time. Into the caravan I go, whoopee! <laughs> Wednesday, 10.45 if my clock's right. Had a shower, which only gave me five minutes of hot water. By the time I'd adjusted it... Uh, while I then dropped the soap into the plug hole where everyone's hair had accumulated during the years. They'd all stuck, and by the time I'd pulled them off, the water was cold. Getting dressed, I nearly put my hand on one of those huge spiders. Like that. Can you see that? Is that visible? Visible from there? That's big. Horrible experience. Next, I had to help mum wash up. She hadn't spoken to anyone for four days now. 9.45, mum's now speaking, but not going home. 9.56, I don't know, Scotland's not so bad. <laughs> so that is me. My mum now is speaking, and that's why I didn't like Scotland. So this is not about, <laughs> this is about me and my family, not about, a tra it's not a travel, uh, it's not a travelogue. <laughs> 25th of July, about 9 Thursday, 75 hours left, nearly half over. 7.45, went to some boring gardens and got rid of five hours. To be honest, I'm looking forward to going home. I miss my bike, the telly, the cat, the bed, halfway decent food. Dad wants me to go and look at some rocks, but I don't particularly want to. 1.30, there's an army geezer outside mowing the grass. It's ear-splitting. I can't hear myself here. One forty-five and 30 seconds. He's gone now. I can get back to reading. One forty-six. 
I'm reading. 2.15, this cow just took a bite out of my tent. Six o'clock, just got back from another castle. Another day is over. 11.55, best news of the holiday, we're going home. I'll be home in eight hours. About 7 p.m., all the clocks have stopped. The floor creaks when you walk on it. Creepy, but I'm home at last. Did I tell you Patricia Hanratty fancies me? I think she does anyway. Pity I hate her. <laughs> and that was, that's the conclusion of my Scottish enterprise. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you so much. I bet loads of people are going, oh, I, I, I burned my teenage diary. I shredded them. Um, but uh, that night's still going, so I think if you're interested in going, you could go to Birmingham just to read your teenage diaries. It's lots of fun. Um, okay, uh, next up, um, our advertised guest, unfortunately, couldn't be with us today. So we've got, um, sh she's died. No, she's not. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I've been... <laughs> I'm, I'm being naughty. I don't know why. Okay, um, our next guest up is um, the lovely uh, Mr. Alistair Clark, stand-up based in Liverpool. Come up to the stage. Hi, guys. You all right? Good. Excellent. Uh, as long as you're all right, mate, that is the, my main priority. The rest of them can go to hell, but as long as you're all right, we're cool. Uh, hiya, welcome. Um, hello. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I've been up here this month doing a stand-up comedy show about depression. Uh, yeah. Uh, not a topic that naturally lends itself to comedy, it turns out. Found out that the hard way. So... Um, yeah, so the first work in progress was like pretty unremittingly sad, so I've made it a lot funnier since then. Um, but I thought, since this is called stand-up tragedy, let's not focus on the funny bits, let's crack on with the sadness. Uh, but I was a bit worried, because um, I was a bit like, you know, I didn't... I did, I did worry about, you know, doing a whole show about depression. I was like, oh, is that going to be too sad? So I wrote a load of other silly shows as well. And what I'll do is, if it gets too sad, I'll just roll out one of the silly shows, tell you the title, do a bit of that, and then, you know, we'll get back on with the sadness so uh good uh yeah no i used to do uh i used to do political comedy but uh you know people told me that was a bit self-obsessed so now i wrote a show about my own mental health uh yeah so i um i've always struggled to live always struggled i've i think there's a nice analogy for it right i look at people and they just seem to be living and it's fine they can just get on with life and they're just like oh wow you're you seem to be doing really well you're doing okay whereas you know when i try and do it it's terrible. It was like when I was a kid, right, I used to get the car with people and they'd like turn the key and just go. And I'd be like, oh, well, that seems like a very simple process. Given the same opportunity, I could do that. Right, ten months ago, I learned to drive, right? Cut to me, sat in tears in a car in a park because I can't get the fucking thing to move. I'm just like, what's going on? What's this enormous lever doing? What are all these stalks? What's this enormous wheel? This is nothing like Mario Kart. I'm just <laughs> crying like, what, guys, there's a clutch. <laughs> Every time you change gear, you've got to pump your foot. Who did that? Who came up with that? That's not my idea. That's a stupid idea, right? Like, that just makes life difficult for yourself. And we've chosen that, right? There's automatic cars, but do we use them? Do we fuck, right? No, we'll have a, have a clutch. Why? Oh, let's make life difficult for ourselves, right? And if you're one of those pricks that's going, oh, you know what? I like the clutch. I like the clutch. It allows me to feel the engine of the car. Just shut up, right? You're looking for a fight. You're like someone who says that the, the second coming is better than the Stone Roses. It isn't. It isn't. You're looking for a fight. Let's fight. No, um, but yeah, like, basically, fuck clutches, man. 
<laughs> Hashtag fuck clutches. That's the takeaway <laughs> message of this. Like, I just, um, I don't know. Like, and driving lessons are a weird thing. Like, you know, my driving instructor was called Peter. It was just some old northern bloke who I had nothing in common with, right? And, you know, essentially, once you can learn that, once you've got the car moving, driving lessons are him just teaching, just chatting to you. It's just chat. And then, then you don't, it doesn't really teach you how to drive. You just get used to the car. So really, what you want in a driving instructor, I reckon, are these two things. You want, one, good chat. Two, be able to manage risk. Those are the two qualities you want in that order. But it was kind of weird, because I just ended up having all these really inane conversations with my driving instructor, like Peter, because he'd just be like... Oh, you know, like, you'd be like, oh, I found out I was a stand-up comedian quite early on. I was like, oh, stand-up, thing about stand-up is you've got to be a man of the people, haven't you? You've got to talk about things everyone can relate to. You know, and I'm sort of like, yeah, kind of, mate, something like that. Um, for the benefit of the tape, I was miming, trying to change gear while simultaneously miming a clutch. So uh, <laughs> if you're back home, you can't enjoy that, but it happened. Um, <laughs> did it go that well in the room? Not massively, but... <laughs> I still felt like if you want the full enjoyment, you need the commentary. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I um, yeah. So this is the thing. I, I, I agreed with him. I was like, yeah, you, you sort of do need to be relatable. You need to talk about stuff that everyone can relate to. But I, you know, I've never really. I can do that about driving, right? Because that's something we've all done. We've all got a shared experience of that. But if I came to talk about, you know, what it's actually like to be me on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm not sure how much people would be able to relate with me because I don't feel like a human being. I always feel like this fucked-up horror show. Right? That's what I feel like. So, anyway, what happened was, is I, uh, you know, if I actually tried to talk about what it's like to be me, I just don't know how well it would go, is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Like, uh, you know when you're going to sleep? You know when you're going to sleep? You don't sleep, though, do you? I haven't slept since about 2008. You don't sleep, do you? Now you just go to the realm of nightmares, don't you? Right, so you're lying in bed. It's about four in the morning. What are you doing? Oh, probably fantasizing about hurting yourself. Probably fantasizing about hurting yourself. Just getting a pick and just sort of shoving it in between your ribs. Not all the way. You're not mad. Just a little bit. Just so that, you know, it would break the skin. And then that would give you something to concentrate on. To take, you know, a physical sensation to take your mind off the pain, misery, and suffering that makes up the world. Right? But you don't. You've got people who love you. The next day, you catch yourself on a bread knife. You're like, ow, that really hurts. So you think maybe self harm's not for me. Am I right? So so you're there, and you're lying in bed, it's four in the morning, you're like, no, I really should go to sleep now, I really should go to sleep, really ought to go to sleep. But you know what before I do, I'll turn over the pillow. Why? Because this side of the pillow, it's wet, isn't it? Wet with tears. So you turn over the pillow, and the other side's wet too. Am I right? Yeah. Guys? Yeah, you with me? We're relatable? You understand what I'm talking about, yeah? Alright, okay. You know when you get text off your old email, get text off your old email, you're like, hey, Clarky, you want to go for a pint? You're like, yeah, I'll go to the pub, I've not been in ages. He's like, oh, you get there, you're like, Clarky, do you want a pint? Do you want a pint? Do you want a pint of lager? No, thanks, I just want to have a ginger beer, please. He's like, no, come on, Clarky, have a lager. Remember all the lager we used to drink at uni? All the lager we used to drink at uni? Yeah, I don't want a lager, mate. Can I just have a ginger beer? Because I'm on some medication, please. Oh, well, what kind of medication you want, Clark? Don't worry about it. You can drink on antibiotics. You can drink on antibiotics, Clark. I was talking to a doctor about this recently. You can drink on antibiotics. Yeah, I'm not on antibiotics, I'm actually on antidepressants. And he goes, oh! And you see the look on his face as he thinks, well, this pint isn't going to be nearly as fun as I thought it was. <laughs> Am I right, guys? Yeah? You with me? Yeah? Okay, right. You know when you're walking down the shop, while you're walking, you know, you're walking down the shop, you're like, oh, wouldn't it be brilliant if a meteorite crashed into the earth and killed literally everyone and everything, including all of you and everyone listening at home? Because that way, I wouldn't need to go to the shop. And why do I need to go to the shop? To buy food. And why have you got to buy food? Because if you don't eat, you die. And that doesn't sound too bad to you, but everyone else has got a bit of a problem with it. Am I right? So you're there, you go down the shop, and you buy, like, I don't know, you know, Oh, what am I going for lunch? This is really stressful. I know. I'll, I'll have a couple of apples and I'll watch half a season of The Wire while I cry.
cry and that'll tie me over till tea time. That's a productive use of an afternoon, isn't it, guys? So yeah, you're like, but what am I going to have for tea? Oh, this is super stressful. What am I going to have for tea? I know what I'll have for tea. I'll have stir fry. Again, why? Because it's easy. Cook it in one pan, barely any washing up. You know what? Save a plate. It is straight out the pan. Right, so you get the stir fry, don't you? You get the stir fry out the pan and you put it in your mouth. You know your mouth? You know the wet hole in your face? You put the stir fry in there and you mash it into a paste. You know, you mash it into a paste with your teeth. You know the white hard bits in the wet hole in your face and you mash it into a paste and you swallow it and that makes you live. And then the next day you've got to go back to the shop because you've run out of stir fry. But you bought a big bag of apples, so you're alright for them. Am I right? Am I right? Guys, am I right? It, it doesn't feel like it. So, okay. Uh, silly show idea. Number one. Richard III, bobsleigh mayhem. Okay, Richard. Uh, we're really sorry, mate. There's not been enough snowfall. There's just not been enough snowfall. We're not going to be able to put a bobsleigh team together this year. It just ain't going to happen. Uh, I'm really sorry because I know you were looking forward to it, but there just isn't going to be any bobsleigh. Sorry, mate. Now is the winter of our discontent. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. There's, a, there's, a, there's an actual joke for you. Um, yeah. I suppose, I, I, to be fair, I thought that was going to take longer than that. So I've still got two minutes. What I'm going to do is I'll tell you a quick. Right, when I like I, I what I've decided is that when you start getting better, it's what happens is you start talking about your problems. And you know when I when I accepted I had a problem, I went to the doctor. And I was like, look, I want to you know a thing. And like I got a, I, I did the show and it wasn't finished. It was the second day and I got a bad review. And what pe what I couldn't leave people let people leave the show because. Um, thinking what the reviewer had said. Because he goes, the thing is, I'm worried about Alistair Clark. I'm worried about him. The thing is, don't be worried about me. I'll be okay. I've got a support network in place. I've got people who love me. I'll be all right. But you need to worry about people who are going through this on a day-to-day -day basis and aren't talking about it and aren't cool with it. You know, that's who you need to worry about. Right? The, uh, you know, the pressure statistics are bad. Like, you know, you know, youngest, the most likely way for someone under 50 to die is to kill themselves. That's not, that's fucked up, right? And, you know, I'm sorry. That's not very funny. But, you know, fuck him. He gave me a bad review. Um, <laughs> you know. And we do have to take his opinion very seriously. You know, he's an 18-year-old theatre student. Uh, who gives someone who's doing a show about how depressed they are a bad review? <laughs> who does that? Like, what a prick. What have I done something? What have you set me off? Madness. The one person I never thought I'd actually talk to about it was Peter, my driving instructor. He goes, I go, oh, I'm, 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 I did something really stupid on the road. He's like, look, what's wrong? I said, look, I'm really depressed. And he goes, oh, depression. I used to have that. Right, so, I, so you know, you just talk to me about it. You know, what, what did I get out of driving lessons? I'll tell you, I got 30 hours of counselling. I don't know many counsellors you go to where you get a driving licence at the end. <laughs> Second time. Begin to think he, you know, I failed the first time because I wasn't ready to lose him yet, you know. If you are a driving instructor, if you're listening at home, quick tip, if you want to keep getting that sweet cash, make your students emotionally dependent on you. <laughs> Cheers, guys, that's for me. I've been asked to clap. You've been lovely, so. Excellent stuff. Oh, am I still on? I'm on the microphone, yes. Excellent stuff. That's why they call it stand-up tragedy. Okay, you've been a fabulous audience. We've got our last act of the evening. Oh. Yeah, you 
did it. <laughs> I did not bribe them, radio listeners or whatever. I'm so, so dinosaur technology. <laughs> radio listeners on the interweb in space. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, our, our final guest is um, stand-up comedian and founder of uh, Dead Cat Comedy Club. He enjoys wrestling, punk rock and your mother. Um, this is Mr. Red Redmond. Give it up. How are we doing, Edinburgh? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to move this mic stand out of the way so you can see me. That's probably a good idea. Um, for those of you on the podcast, I'm a skinny fucker. So, good. Um, lovely. Uh, well, I'm, 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 I do struggle with mic stands because we're the same build and it, oh dear. I'll put you over there. Uh, good. Well, that, that's, I've been sat watching this show and it has been good. There's been a lot of people on here that have made you think about stuff. Uh, that is not my forte. Um, I am not a thinker. I am a ruiner. So, good. Um, I live in Salford, right? I'm, I'm going to tell you about this first. I live in Salford. Uh, I'll, I'll explain what Salford's like for those of you that haven't seen Crime Watch. It's, it's quite an interesting place, right? Uh, within the first two days of me moving into my new flat in Salford, um, someone got shot in the face right outside. And that's, I know, it's a terrible housewarming gift. <laughs> I did get some free flowers out of it though, so you've got to look at. Yeah, they're enjoying that one. Good. <laughs> Sounded like she sat on the chair the wrong way round. Brilliant. That's what I like from my audience. And I, I for those of you that, that can't, you know, because you're listening to this and stuff, I am at the moment uh, beneath four of the brightest lights I've ever seen. It feels like we're playing a game of burn the ginger. It really is. It's um, it's interesting, right? And I've got a headache. Um, Hangover. I, um, I've, I've been enjoying my festival so far. I've been up here over two weeks, and I'll happily admit to you guys, it's starting to get into my soul a little bit, right? Because, you know, like, whilst I'm here, my routine is either seeing a show or performing a show or seeing a show or performing a show. And yesterday, I bought a sandwich, right? Which is a really nice, normal thing to do. But when they handed me the sandwich in the shop, my body reacted in the only way it knew how, and I applauded. <laughs> It's particularly strange when people in the queue join in, let me tell you. I ended up reviewing that sandwich for Broadway Baby. Three stars a bit cheesy, so. Hey, it's the only joke in this bit, mate. Savour it. Savour it. Um, but the, uh, no, the reason I, in fact, I'll, I'll talk about this because um, I think it sort of fits the theme. I live, I live alone and I think if you live alone, there is either something wrong with you or all of the people that you know, right? I know there's something wrong with me because a friend of mine came around the other day, I say friend, a dealer, and I was sat in the living room eating a jar of, of peanut butter using a Snickers as an edible spoon. And that, that's just a sign that you've let your life go, isn't it? You know, like normally for Lent people give up things like chocolate. Well, I gave up on myself and it's, it's been going very well. It's, um, she left. Anyway. I, <laughs> true story, I'm recently single actually, which means I now spend, uh, oh don't ah that, it's not panto season, she was a right bitch, anyway, um, she's behind me, Jesus Christ, if she is, she could be, she's quite small. Um, anyway, let's get away from that. I, um, I, I basically, I, I live alone in this flat, and I don't think that I should live alone because I'm, I'm quite scared of everything. You know, like, um, like my microwave, for instance, I'm terrified of my microwave, because <laughs> it goes up to an hour. Who's microwaving for an hour? It'd take 20 minutes to defrost Walt Disney. You don't, you don't need an hour, do you? You know, my cat exploded after 10. So, that was a nightmare. <laughs> I think they should put instructions on cats. Um, 
lost five in a tumble dryer last week. It was a nightmare. But I have got two new pairs of slippers, so. And a spare one if anyone wants a pencil case. There we go. Special offer. Today only. Oh, God. I, um, I'm also scared. I've got window cleaners, right? I've got window cleaners, but they're not like normal window cleaners. My window cleaners abseil down the side of my building with Ouija's and without warning, right? I was trying to have my breakfast the other day. I thought Navy Seals were after my Cocoa Pops. I got so scared, I almost turned the milk chocolatey. Right? It's not a good look. But the worst thing, the worst thing now about living alone is um, they keep finding bodies in the canal next to my flat. And if they're finding so many, I'm starting to suspect myself, right? I'm genuinely terrified, right? I live alone with a rabbit and I'm pretty sure she can't testify in court. I am, I am completely fucked, right? Because I'm like, a, if you don't know me personally, like I'm quite a quiet guy that keeps himself to himself. And that's like the worst thing you can do in that situation. <laughs> Basically, what I'm trying to say is I'm either doing it in my sleep or someone's trying to frame me. And either way, I'll probably be doing my next Edinburgh show via Skype. So um, that'll be good. Look out for that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave you on this. Uh, this is the uh, uh, most tragic story that I've ever put in uh, in one of my stand-up shows. Um, basically, um, a couple years ago, I had a really weird Christmas, right? I thought it'd be really fun to spend Christmas alone. It's not. I cried three times. And that was mainly, though, because I watched We Bought a Zoo back-to-back uh, -back because it's my favourite film. And it's beautiful. No, it is a work of cinematic artistry. It is beautiful, right? Matt Damon's in it and Scarlett Johansson and there's, like, a lion, but the lion dies. Spoiler alert. Um, and they've got, like, a little girl and there's a little boy and he lets the snakes out of the box. So it's Go and watch it. You will cry rivers of tears. Um, anyway, back in the room. I, I went and spent Christmas Day alone. I thought it'd be dead fun because I'd be in charge of my own day. You know, I'd sort of be in charge of things. I thought that'd be nice. Um, so I did what anyone would do if they wanted a really good Christmas dinner. And I went to McDonald's. Yeah, you're right. It's a bad choice. It was a bad choice, right? I thought it'd be fun. You know, I'm, I'm having a good Christmas day. I'm going to be in charge of my own Christmas dinner. Going to order something Christmassy, something festive off the festive menu. So I ordered myself a chicken fiesta. And yes, you're right, Edinburgh. That is Spanish for chicken party. So I got the... Uh, it's my favourite joke. I got the... Um, I got the chicken fiesta and I put it down on the table and I started uh, nomming away and I was enjoying myself, right, um, on Christmas Day. I started eating the burger and I was having a good Christmas Day until I read what it said on the box. And I remember what it said on the box. It said, enjoy yourself this festive season. Rule, sorry. <laughs> I just realized, right, because this is a very dark room. I mean, the, the light's on me, great, but I can't see any of you. I normally require eye contact for this. And I realised, for all I know, I could just be staring at someone's chest, you know? So that I don't want anyone to be put off if I'm just staring into the darkness, but that is definitely what's going to happen. So I read uh, on the box of the Chicken Fiesta, it said, um, Enjoy yourself this festive season. Revel in a golden crispy-coated chicken breast, covered in Batavia lettuce, pepper cheese, nachos, a Mexican and chive sauce, all on a chive chia batter. Now, does that sound Christmassy to you? Don't get me wrong, I love a vagina as much as the next man. But what have the Mexicans got to do with Christmas? Because I don't remember the prominent Latino themes of the nativity. I don't remember the fourth wise man, Ramon, and the gift that he gave Jesus of guacamole. I don't remember any of this. Right? I don't remember the typical Christmas scene of Santa in a sombrero twatting a reindeer piñata full of mustaches. Right? I don't remember any of this, and even the ingredients did not make sense. Batavia lettuce. 
What the fuck is Batavia lettuce? It sounds like a Soviet excuse. What are you doing in this country? Batavia lettuce. Fuck off, Putin. Right? Made me so angry. I didn't know how to deal with this. I was genuinely angry on Christmas Day. I didn't know how to deal with this. So I just started filling the burger into my face. That's all I knew how to do. So I just started filling it into my face. And I was full. And I was bloated. And I was angry and disappointed. And you know what? That sounds like a pretty normal Christmas to me. <laughs> oh, God. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to this show. And more importantly, um, thank you so much for coming up to this festival. Because uh, God knows this month there'll be millions of people sat at home watching Netflix and slowly dying. So well done to you for coming out and seeing something with your own face. It's like a, it's a privilege these days. Um, anyway, and also, people on the podcast, fucking get off your asses and get on a train and come up here and give me some money because I'm really skin. Um, anyway, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been absolutely fantastic. I've been Red Redmond. Have an excellent fringe. Thank you very much and good night. Okay, thank you. That's my lineup for tonight. So if you'd like to give a final applause for all our lovely participants, Mr. Ian Hales, Joy France, Ben Waddington, Alistair Clark, Red Redmond, and I've been Louise Pazakala. Um, you may follow me on Twitter at Louisa Poet. Okay, um, I'll do one last poem. Um, don't scare you, I'll do a short one. I've got time for a cut time. Oh, a little short one. Okay, so for all our oddballs and misfits and not fitter in us, for everyone who goes to work on a packed commuter train, this is the commuters. Bodies clot clot clotted together, legs knotted, faces blotched and blotted. We commute. Stood up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Up, pulses pulse, sweat glands seep. Lego men and work were Barbies. Office chic were office sheep. And I'm just a mouse on a wheel strapped for cash, so I've strapped on the blinkers, become a company thinker. I've stopped the drastic rewire. I've stopped dreaming big dreams. Now I just tinker. I'm part of the team. Tap, 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 fingers do the walking. Tap, 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 headset, mindset does the talking. This plastic self corrupts with stealth. Computer, commuter, computer, commuter, computer, commuter. We begin to hate the rain. And I love the rain. Tap, 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 it pours on my window. And out I rush to stand with the smokers. Face upwards, gleeful. My cheeks are wet, my cold hands wings. And yes, these are a few of my favourite things. Colleagues, don't straightjacket me back inside. Don't make me sing your company song. I'm not a commuter. I don't belong. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, Stand Up Tragedy is a wonderful show, wonderful podcast. You all know that we, we, do, we come up we come up and we perform for free, more or less, what we have to pay for our lodgings. So um, there'll be a, a bucket at the back. Please give what you think the show is worth. A quid per performer might be nice, or whatever you've got. Uh, thank you so much um, for coming, and we'll see you soon.
it's time to go. go.